Hello, everyone. My name is Brianna. I'm a member here, um, and I'm going to be reading our passages for today. Um, the first one comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And the second is from Matthew 6, verses 5 to 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have, truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Thank you, Brianna. And if you haven't opened yet, please open to Exodus chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 6. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. I want to give you a quick word. We have a new deacon candidate starting their training next Sunday uh, from 12 to 4. So we just ask for your prayers for those men and women. Once that training is complete, then they'll have some follow-up time with the elders, and then we'll present them to our members and then to our congregation um, formally putting their names uh, before you for prayer and for encouragement um, in their new appointment in this office. So please be praying for our church. It's an exciting time to see men and women step into this particular office of the local church to care for the spiritual and physical needs of our community. Uh, Jackie Kolnick and Brad Anderson have been serving in that role, and we're excited, and I know they are excited, to see more uh, women and men join them uh, in caring for our church body that way. Uh, again, Exodus chapter 20, Matthew chapter 6 will be our primary text today. And to this day, uh, Orthodox Jews are tremendously careful with the name of God. In fact, they only speak his name audibly in prayer and when they read the Torah or the Hebrew Bible, what you and I perhaps call the Old Testament they use stand-ins like the Almighty or the One Above or Hashem, which just means the name. Even when writing God's name, many will not write all three letters. Even in English, they'll write G-D and leave out a letter. Or when speaking about Yahweh, when they speak about him in the Hebrew, they'll replace the letters of H with the letters K so that they won't even spell it properly as to then be thinking that they are using his name. It's noteworthy, isn't it, that English speakers, when faced with the Hebrew, add vowels so it's easier for us to pronounce. Jews remove letters so that they are more careful than possible with the name of God. According to Rabbi Brock Davidson, he says this, our caution is founded on our understanding of the third of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take his name in vain. Although this verse is classically interpreted as referring to a senseless oath using God's, or rather GD's name, the avoidance of saying GD's name extends to all expressions, he says. Suffice to say, Orthodox Jews are incredibly careful with the name of God. But the commandment that we will consider today goes well beyond a specific order of letters or just merely saying a particular name. After all, a name is never really about a name. A name is about everything that that name represents. A name is a story, a reality to which that name merely points or summarizes. So yes, we ought not be flippant about how and when and where and why we speak the name of God, but we must, must be much more careful about what we claim is true about this name. And that's what we need help with today. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, too often we do not come trembling. We come, quite frankly, I come entitled that I deserve audience with you that I deserve your attention, and that I deserve to speak your name. 
mostly because I am unaware of its power and of its true worth, but also because I'm very impressed with myself, and we are a people often impressed with ourselves. And so we thank you that you've ordered the commandments not to simply be rules and regulations that a society would live by, but the revelation of your character. And so help us today, God, to see you more clearly than we did when we walked into this context of the gathering. As we've sung your word, as we've prayed in accordance with your word, as we've even gathered, giving witness to the reality of your word, now we desire as a people to submit to the proclamation of your word. And so shape us, Father. Help me, help me to be clear, help me to be responsible with your word, and I I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters, we are in this together, and so, Father, would you not just shape me individually or my brothers and sisters individually, but would you, by your spirit, forge, shape, and make us a people together that you're calling us to be? So we pray, Father, that your word would do as it pleases, as you please with your word, that it would not return void, that it would reap much fruit as a result of your faithfulness, your kindness, your grace, your love, and your mercy. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, if you remember, we have been uh, going through the Ten Commandments. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first. Last week, we looked at the second. Today, we will consider the third. And along with the Ten Commandments and considering what God intended, not just simply in that moment, but for all of time, namely through his Son, along with the Ten Commandments, we've been considering the Sermon on the Mount. We've been following the order of the Ten Commandments and then seeing how Jesus fulfills, satisfies, lives out, and then empowers his people to obey these Ten Commandments, they juxtapose nicely together, if you will. There's an intention of the Ten Commandments that is missed if we do not read them alongside of Jesus, who is the Word made flesh. He is the one who comes with the new covenant. He comes to satisfy, as we just sang. All of the promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament, and in particular the Ten Commandments, anticipate the arrival and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Now in him we're able to obey what was otherwise impossible, namely these ten words, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. So two weeks ago, we looked at you shall have no other gods. Last Sunday, we looked at you shall not make images. Today, we will look at the third, and here's how it's recorded. These are the very words of God, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, God continues to speak, so we can celebrate that. Because speaking enough, just have no other gods. He didn't need to say anything else. That summarized the entirety of the law. And yet he graciously repeats himself. He graciously continues to clarify and give us this personal language. How beautiful is it that he speaks to this human being for the sake of humanity by his grace. And he does so in a very personal way. If you remember, he begins Exodus chapter 20, with this affirmation of who he is. I am the Lord your God. These rules are not coming out of a black hole. These rules are not just coming out of nowhere. They are coming within the context of relationship, and they are coming out of the character of God. He is not deciding on a whim what is righteousness. He is telling us by his character what is righteousness. His identity and nature, therefore, are central to his law. What he commands, he already is. Therefore, to say, have no other gods, really means I am supreme. To say, make no images, means I am sufficient. And today, for God to say, do not take my name in vain, what he is saying is, I am true and there is no other. I am true. And the definite article in front of the name is vital for our understanding what this commandment actually means In other words, if the text read, you shall not take his name or my name or my names in vain, then the most important question would be, well, what are his names? Let's be careful about that. But it says the name. So the question we first must ask is, what is the name? What is that name, that that, that title, the name in reference to? To be sure, there are many names that God gives us for himself, and we'll get to those in a minute, but scripture also speaks in general. Let me give you a few places where the name of the Lord is spoken about in general. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is 
safe. Joel 2.32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Micah 5.4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Romans 10.13. Also quoted in Acts 2 from Joel chapter 2. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. One more, James 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord, the name of God, the name of Yahweh is an idea all its own. Independent of what he may be called, the Lord, the name of the Lord, almost pers- is almost always personified in Scripture. Theologian Louis Burkhoff explains it this way. In such cases, the name, he puts in quotes, stands for the whole manifestation of God in relation to his people or simply for the person so that it becomes synonymous with God. Therefore, to speak of the name is to speak of God in his fullness. We are not speaking of his title. We are not speaking of what we call him. We are speaking about him. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down, church? Or rather, what I stole from Louis Burkhoff. Either way, are we on the same page? See, there is a holiness to this commandment that goes well beyond not being casual when we say God. There is a holiness to what the third commandment is teaching and commanding us that goes well beyond what accidentally slips from your lips when you stub your toe or when someone cuts you off or it just leaks out because you heard somebody else say it. There's so much more than that. Now now think about that. How hard it is to not just flippantly say his name, how much more difficult it is to not take his name in vain. I I I want us to see... This commandment is way harder than we at first think. Religion always makes morality look reachable. Religion always makes morality look reachable. Like you just do this, don't do that, you're good. God says, don't take me in vain. And the practical question is, well, how do you, how do, you do that? His names are not unhelpful, though. Let's, let's think about this. They're quite the opposite. When we hear a name of God, they each are a gift of His grace, because each of his names throughout the scripture gives us a picture of his character, of his personhood, of his knowability. Think about it. To know someone's name is to know them. How much can you really understand about a person or rather have relationship with them if you don't know their name and can't remember their name? You get all awkward around each other, right? Like, am I the one that asked? Because it gets awkward if after seven times of hanging out or seeing them at church, I'm going to go, what's your name again? Right? We, we culturally understand to not know someone's name is blasphemy. May I just suggest to you sort of like a, a moment for us as a church. If you forgot someone's name, just ask. It's not nearly as big a deal as continue to navigate life in that awkwardness of, hey, bro, hey, man, what's up with you, girl? It's good to see you, right? We know what you're doing. Just, just speak the truth. See, any relationship without a name is superficial, if not sinister, It's superficial, if not sinister. We don't care what to call a person because it doesn't matter to us. But when someone tells us their name, they're disclosing something of who they are to us. Something now that everything we begin to know about them can hang on. Think about that now with God. He tells us his name. He tells us the many names that we can call him. And in each of these names, it reveals much of his character. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, gives us a couple of those names, and then I'll add two of the more common or other widely used names of God. The first is Yahweh. In in verse 7, it it, it says, um, do not take the name of the Lord, that is Yahweh, in vain. Yahweh is God's covenantal name, and it's used over 6,000 times in the Bible. And it's used exclusively for God's God himself, and exclusively for his people. In other words, it's never in reference to a foreign God. Yahweh, the name Yahweh, is never used in sort of a general sense of a foreign or a false God. This is a personal covenantal name of God shared only with his people. 
It's repeated over and over again here in the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. And each time it is in reference to his covenantal name, Yahweh. And in many translations that of English translations, those letters are always capitalized. L-O-R-D, always capitalized, giving us a picture as English readers. That is his covenantal name, Yahweh. He is the personal and covenant-keeping God of the Bible. He is faithful. He is true. He is perfect. He is holy. Not only that, but do not take the name of the Lord your God. That word God is Elohim, or sometimes just El, is God's most generally used name, or most general sense of the word. It's used 2,600 times in the Bible. Elohim is used widely, sometimes in a broad reference to God's divinity or deity, like in Genesis. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. He is creator. He is all-powerful. He is all-sufficient. He is God. Not only Yahweh and Elohim, which we find in verse 7, but also widely looking at the scriptures, Adonai is another word, or another name rather, for God. Derived from uh, words meaning both to rule and to judge, it points to God's almighty rulership of all things. The, the name is also only used of God. In other words, again, not used of false gods or foreign deities, but only of the God of the Bible. And so with this regal definition and exclusive use of it, salvation is always in picture for God's people when the word or the name Adonai is used, like in Psalm 38:22, Make haste to help me, O Lord, O, o Adonai, my salvation. He is Savior. He is King. He is Lord. Fourthly, Shaddai or El Shaddai, is God's all-powerful name. But it has a more literal translation, meaning the God Almighty. Genesis 17, 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty, or El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. He is the one who can do anything and everything. There is no limit to his divine power and ability so each of these names reveals an aspect of his character or his glory, if you like, with this general implication hanging on the name. So the name is meant to keep all of this in consideration when it's being used. So when we wonder, which name? Is it Yahweh? Is it Adonai? Is it Elohim? Is it El Shaddai that I should be careful about? Yes. And everything that comes with it. This is what it means when we say the name. A God who has revealed himself by his name. A God who has revealed himself through these many names so that we might know him by his character, by his nature. A God who does all this by his merit, not our own, is not a God we can manipulate, therefore, through incantations and manipulation by just saying his name. See, this is what the ancient Near East religions taught one another. To simply say a name was ultimately to make them or put this God on the hook. And if I say his name more and more or her name more and more and over and over again, somehow this will manipulate my deity and make him or her do as I please. But to say the name of the God of the Bible is to cling to his character, not to force his hand. So this is why we must be very careful he is a God who gives himself by grace, not a God who is coerced by our efforts. That is the essence of what it means to take his name in vain, to claim his glory for our own device, our own purposes, and our own self. To take the, the name of the Lord or the names of the Lord in vain is to use his name, his fame, his glory for our own purposes. It is to speak to God as if his name is empty as if he is empty, as if he is vain, as if he is worthless, when in reality the worth and weight of God's name is beyond measure. The word vain in the original language, Hebrew is saw, saw. It bears the meaning of vanity, futility, or worthless. That which has no result or use or, or has this worthlessness to it. Therefore, in taking the name of the Lord in vain, we are considering it flippantly or casually or rather, more consistently, suggesting that it's something true about the name, something true about God, which he never said or never suggested or never affirmed. After all, to live the Christian life is to live a light in accordance with God's word and with God's will. And therefore, to take his name in vain is to do the very opposite of what it means to be a Christian. But isn't it true that many things have taken place in the name which are actually incredibly horrific? 
This is a problem that many have with Christianity in general. The historic example is the Christian Crusades. Modern examples perhaps include extremists crashing into the World Trade Center. These events open up to a wider philosophical debate about the poison of religion. The argument goes like this. Many people have done incredibly evil things in the name of religion, in particular in the name of Jesus, in the name of God, in the name of Christianity. How then is it possible this could be good and right and true? The short answer I'd like to suggest to you, then then walk through it a little bit. The short answer is that we break the third commandment with much more regularity than we dare admit. Let's start with the Crusades, because that'll be fun, and then work to our hearts. Some historians suggest that the Christian Crusades are one of the most misunderstood events in all of church history. Like many things, it was infinitely more complicated than our sort of pop history hot takes of the 21st century suggest. Though the storyline has been revised as this murderous Christian aggression from the West toward the peaceful Muslims of the East, a deeper look proves otherwise. In fact, historian Robert Wilkin explains the Crusades were sparked by a Christian counteroffensive against the occupation of lands that had been Christian for centuries before the arrival of Islam, namely Jerusalem. However, it wasn't just a reaction. There was actually deep Christian scholarship that went into the Crusades. Because here's one of our, what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Meaning that because we're showing up later in the history of the world, we must be smarter than everyone else who came before us. Let me, let me help us understand why that's not true for one of the million reasons why. That ultimately we think that we see this hypocritical moment in the Crusades that was lost on the people. Like, how could you do this when the cross of Christ is so central? But they realized, as clearly as we ought to, that a plain reading of the Bible leads us to a cross. Not a war in which violence is executed against enemies, but to the one true king, Jesus, who comes from the throne and dies in the place for sinful rebels like you and me. Augustine was one of these theologians. In his mind, just war was only permissible if it was done at the command of God himself. So they had to wrestle with this in the 10th and 11th century, on into the 12th, right? Does God want this? This led to a particular kind of distinction that almost became this mantra, convert the heathen and destroy the heretic. This is how they figured it out. So God wants us to convert the heathen but destroy the heretic. So convert the one who doesn't know about God but destroy the one who is speaking out willfully against him. And so somewhere in the turn of the 10th to the 11th century, there's people like Michael the Syrian. He, he comes along responding to this new group of Christians that have responded to an affront or an assault of uh, Eastern Muslims against them. They're coming to join the ranks of the Christian army. Here's how Michael interprets this group's response. He says this, The God of vengeance, notice the name that he employs, who alone is the Almighty, raised from the south the children of Ishmael to deliver us by them from the hands of the Romans. So he's going to the scriptures. He's sort of metaphorically, if not allegorically, applying what he's reading in the Old and New Testament as speaking about Christians and about Muslims. And the inclusion of this this faction of Christian soldiers is God's blessing and affirmation of the assault that they were about to bring upon people. Saw it as sovereign, saw it as providential. And they would soon, at the leadership of Michael the Syrian, they would soon execute men, women, and children in the name of God. Many people said they can't become a Christian because of this. Things like this. Completely understandable. Let's be honest. If Christianity is best summarized by the Crusades, none of us should be Christians. If this is where our faith leads, we should turn and run and flee now. The real question, though, is do the Crusades present a problem for Christianity? Do they present a problem for the God of the Bible? No. What I'd like to suggest is rather the Crusades reveal the horrific problem and consequence of taking the Lord's name in vain. As Professor Rebecca McLaughlin concluded in her book, Confronting Christianity, while we must understand the desire to retake Jerusalem in its historic context and the centuries of conquest by Muslim armies that Eastern Christians had sustained, this needless slaughter of women and children represented a stunning failure of Christian ethics. She goes on, 
Jesus consistently taught nonviolence, and on the cross, he took the full force of God's judgment on the nations on himself. The repeated New Testament directives against violence make the indiscriminate slaughter of civilians unjustifiable from any recognizable Christian perspective. In other words, to claim God's divine favor over such efforts is to misrepresent and even ignore God and his word entirely. The entire crusades, therefore, is a breaking of the third commandment, not a picture of what the kingdom of God is like on earth. This is what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. The Christian crusades, though, may feel like an extreme example, perhaps helpful and interesting historically, but extreme. However, I think this pathway of sinfulness, of breaking the third commandment, is still very much well-worn. 11th century Christians were hurt. Much more, they were brutally victimized. And in order to reconcile their pain, they sought resolution, a restitution, a reconciliation, some kind of response. And through cursory, cursory biblical interpretation, they validated their desire to respond to violence with violence. Here's the issue. We still face problems. We still seek resolution. We still have this sort of cursory acknowledgement of God. Real talk, usually by Googling a verse with a keyword in it to see if he has anything to say about my particular situation. Then we come out of that process claiming divine favor, or, or at least that Google has given us a picture of divine favor and justification and understanding. I know what God says now because I found this verse and it's fixing my problem. But in that process, we fail to repent. We fail to submit to God and ultimately fail to obey the fullness of the name. Let me go a little bit deeper with a subsequent scenario just to, to help us navigate this because this is deeply helpful for my soul. It's been my experience that one of the ways that we most customarily, most regularly break the third commandment, regularly take the Lord's name in vain, is through our prayer life, or at least the way we talk about it. Let me explain what I mean. And remember, I love you. Okay? All right. When we face a problem, we lose a job, tension in our marriage, or an addiction of some kind kind of recurs and comes back. We face this particular problem. Then we seek a resolution. What am I going to do? We desire peace. We desire assurance. We acknowledge God. We know that as Christians, we're supposed to consider him and think about him, even though we already have an idea in our mind, usually when it comes to finding a resolution about what we're supposed to do. We, we sort of bow the head. We, we wink at. We acknowledge God. We go to our Christian friends. And here's then where begin, things start to begin un to unravel, at least in my experience, in about 15, 16 years of ministry and about 37 years of being me. Um, as we seek God, we often don't even know what to do. We don't know what that part is about how to seek his will. So we're, we're unsure about what it means to seek his will. And so there we default to the thing that we do know is our feelings, what we feel like. In particular, we think about how we feel about our problem and tend to translate or interpret our problem into some form of injustice or shame. Meaning, we interpret why something bad is happening as someone else's sin against me or rather, what I deserve because I'm bad. We grow overwhelmed by either anger or sorrow. And when we speak with our friends about it, what does a good friend do? They see you angry, they go, yeah, that person's a jerk. They see you sorrowful, no, nah, it's okay, you're special, you're great, it's fine. They, we actually, even as Christians, friends, make the problem worse by feeding in to the anger or the sorrow. And therefore, we take this route of either not searching the scriptures, but just validating emotions. Therefore, we encourage someone to take this pout of redemption, I put in quotes there, because it's not one that actually faces sin, it's one that merely is facing feelings. We appease your anger, we appease your sorrow, you appease my anger and my sorrow. We interpret our pain as either something we deserve or something is someone else's problem. And then, at that moment, we think we've heard from God and we take action. However, we know we can't just go to the Christian community and go, I'm angry, so I'm doing this. Or I'm depressed, I'm opting out. We can't do that in Christian community, right? Because that doesn't feel biblical, or at least the idea of being biblical that we've thought about. We need something spiritual, right? You can't go to your group and just go, I'm angry today. Because we'll go, what's the verse you're referring to when you talk about your anger, Right? I'm sad. Well, what verse says you could be sad today? We go crazy, right? We swing the pendulum. So we're like, I got to think of something. I got I know. I 
prayed about it. And here's what I'm going to do. That's what we say. I think God wants me to leave my spouse. I think God wants me to take that other job in that other part of the city, that other part of the world. I think God wants me to fill in the blank. We make a claim on God, which, if people just knew a little bit more about us, knew a little bit more of the story, and we let them in, exposed our heart a little bit more, they would realize most of what we are talking about is our emotion and not his word and not his will. That's breaking the third commandment. Because we come out on the other side and we're saying, here's what God wants, and we've never submitted to him. Taking the Lord's name in vain, treating it as empty, using his name for our own devices. So the real question with human behavior is not, are we convinced that God has told us something? Rather, it's about whether or not we think we are doing something that truly is in the name of of the Lord. The real question is, is this word, is this action, is this idea, is this desire, is this thing that I am longing for and looking for, is it in line with the heart of God? Is it in line with his character? Not, have you done something and did you say it was God? It feels like a bit of like this invisible force field then that the Christian church can't even tell, well, God, God said she's supposed to do that, so... I don't know. I mean, it says like literally in every book of the Bible not to do that, but she said that God spoke outside of this, apparently in the 67th book of the Bible that has yet yet been written. Just because someone says that they do something in the name does not mean that the name approves. This is what I'm getting at. To be sure, the third commandment is what not to do with God's name, but Scripture is replete with positive affirmation and instruction about what to do and how to speak the name. So please turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we'll consider in verse 5. Here, Jesus is giving his disciples his kingdom ethic. He's communicating to them his will, his way, what it means to be blessed within the economy of his kingdom, what it means to even be considered as one who is a kingdom member. And in this address, when we're getting to prayer, Jesus has moved into hypocrisy. He's moved into this conversation about what it means to be a hypocrite and that that's not the way of the kingdom, that something else is. And and within that category, if you will, he speaks about prayer. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners. They that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your, what's that word, church? name. Jesus juxtaposes two different approaches to prayer. One which he prohibits, the other which he commands. The first is a hypocritical approach. The hypocrite is one who loves to stand and pray, to be seen and heard. The hypocrite is one who heaps up empty or vain phrases, meaningless phrases. The word actually is this onomatopoetic word, babble. They just make noise, believing that they will be heard by God for the quantity of their words. What Jesus is describing is someone who does not know who they are speaking to when they pray. In other words, with the full weight of the third commandment sort of within our consciousness at this point, Jesus is prohibiting a posture in prayer which takes the Lord's name in vain. It's hypocrisy. He speaks about a person who is using prayer for the attention of their peers in order to manipulate God himself to give them blessing. Jesus speaks so plainly, he just goes, don't be like them. Don't be like them. The second approach to prayer is really subtle. But the subtle prayer life is not unsubstantial, quite the opposite. In going to your room, in closing the door, what Jesus is giving us a picture of is quieting all of the other voices that the voice of God may be unhindered by the sounds of this world. This is not about secret so that nobody knows you're praying. This is about secret so you hear the one you're praying to. So you hear his voice. God sees us in that secret moment. He knows what we need before we ask. How beautiful is that? 
Jesus says, simply go to your father and pray to him in secret, not to be seen and heard by people, but to be seen and heard by the God of the universe. Prayer is not a time to use God for your glory, as if there was ever a time, but to submit to God for his glory. Once Jesus gives us these clear instructions, look, look closer at verse 9. Instructions about this posture of prayer. He instructs us specifically how to pray. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This humble posture produces humble language in prayer. Therefore, in humility, we speak the name of God rightly within the scope of his character. He is Father and he is in heaven. This initial move in prayer is complete and and utterly acknowledging the holiness or set-apartness of God, and yet at the very same time, it is understanding of our relationship or closeness and intimacy with him. Another way of reading this, of what begins to now take place and hallowed be your name within that posture is to let your name be holy. Let your name be treated with reverence. So to take God's name rightly is to speak to him as a holy, hallowed, and heavenly father. Think about that. And it's important to think about this because the latter half of verse 10 in Exodus 20 says, he will not hold him guiltless who takes the Lord's name in vain. We need to get this right, church. Because the only thing that's scarier than a very clear consequence is a really general one. Right? He says he will not hold him guiltless. He doesn't say specifically what the consequence will be. He's like, you'll have a consequence if you take the Lord's name in vain. So we must think about this. Of all of the names, now, Jesus could have said, uh, Yahweh, who's in heaven. He, he could have said, he said, he said, Lord or God, Almighty. Instead, what does he say to call him? Heavenly Father. There's a tension within the holiness and tenderness of this address. Righteousness and intimacy, distance yet proximity, law yet grace. To rightly take God's name is to hold in tension the brilliant union of his character. He is not just heavenly, but he is father. He is not just holy, but he is love. He is not just law, he is also grace. I wonder if to take the Lord's name in vain then could be most basically explained as addressing thinking, employing his name without equally and simultaneously considering him as heavenly and as father. Always both. Let me explain again by going back to these two earthly problems that we have when we face issues in life. But now considering what is most central in that situation. Although, I think it's important to say, that often our perhaps most consistent thing is to not address and consider God at all. But when we do, these two problems arise again. One is that we are led to shame, and the other is that we are led by entitlement. So first, when we face a problem, we often go to God as heavenly, but not as Father. In, in other words, this, this might be described as, as this religious approach to God. When we do this, we perceive God to be cold and legalistic. Therefore, whatever issue we may be facing, we assume God is either punishing us or withholding from us or withdrawing from us because we deserve no better. This produces shame. A God who is merely holy but not loving produces a shameful people. I think we're taught this perspective, consciously and subconsciously, because we assume, as even as ministry professionals, we assume if you get a picture of his holiness, then you'll be holy too. And so what the church has historically done, and religion in general, is hold up this high and lofty, authoritative, judging God, which in many respects is connected to his character. But in actuality, seeing God only as holy doesn't produce holiness. It produces despair. If we only have, a, have God's law but don't have his grace, we are neither enabled nor motivated to be holy. Rather, we are overwhelmed by the impossible standard we could never achieve. This is what happens if we only see God as heavenly, or rather just only as heavenly but not as Father. He is holy, but he is not close. Secondly, we may face a problem. We are tempted to see God as Father, but not as heavenly. I wanted to call this the uh, millennial, millennium problem, but it's the modern one, so it's not just a particular generation. In considering God void of his holiness, we envision a deity 
who is less than divine. He is loving and caring, warm and welcoming, nice by a fire, slank it, chilling with some coffee, like that's a good day for us. Reading his word, unconvicted, just warm, fuzzy, Instagrammable moments, right? But without his righteousness, he becomes permissive and unbothered by our sin. And so we simply receive his non-judgmental, wrathless love. We feel warm. We feel welcomed. We wiggle out every time we disobey, constantly delaying obeying his word and disrespecting him and call it playful. And we're just joking, just having a good time. Everyone does this in college. Everyone does this in Chicago. Isn't it hilarious? We become entitled children. Therefore, whatever result or outcome we desire in, partic- in a particular problem, we begin to presume and assume God will work this together according to my riches and my glory. This approach to God always leads to anger and distance. Please mark these words. This approach will always lead to anger. Think about it. If we have a concept where God's grace means that there is no grounding for his law, there is no clarity of his character, and therefore I am permissive, or I'm allowed rather, I have permission to do what I want, we have no comprehension therefore of the costliness of his affection for us. I think we foster this view by believing that it will create intimacy. We, we even hide it from our children. Don't teach them the wrath. Don't teach them the judgment. Don't teach them the righteousness of God. Just simply teach him that he is loving. This does not create intimacy. It creates distance. Because we begin to remove ourselves from him when we don't get from him what we want. How we want it. When we want it. The way we want it. See, when dad says no... We'll look for someone who'll say yes. In either approach, religious or modern, we take the Lord's name in vain in both cases. We consider him partially, not completely. And so the question for us is how do we have a right thinking about God? How might our minds be reformed and our hearts be transformed in a right approach and not taking the Lord's name in vain? Well, in order to have a right view of the Heavenly Father, we must first look at the eternal son. Perhaps unexpectedly, we would assume that God is father because we are his children, but this is again chronological snobbery. We avoid the great scope of eternity past and acknowledge that God the son and God the father and God the spirit is the epicenter of the character and nature of God. In other words, It is not our existence that makes God the Father. Rather, it is the eternal existence of the Son, the fullness of the Trinity, which reveals the fatherhood of God. It is in this relationship which has constituted his fatherhood since eternity past. He did not become Father because we showed up. That means, this is so good, that means that the love of God is not contingent upon you and me. How good is this news? That means that the love of God has always been a thing shared by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in eternity past, which led Puritan John Owen to say it this way about the Father's love for the Son. The fountain and prototype of all love and all love in the creation was introduced from this fountain to give a shadow and resemblance of it, that the Father's love for the Son and the Son's for the Father. In other words, God the Son welcomes us, the people of God, into this loving and holy relationship with God the Father, a relationship which he has enjoyed from eternity past forever and one in which he alone deserves. He welcomes us in. Theologically, we must first see that the Son who became flesh, Jesus Christ, never took the name of the Lord in vain. This is the first way he accomplishes this invitation for us. He, therefore, is a candidate for full union with God because he has always rightly taken the name, reputation, fame, glory, and character of his heavenly Father. But also the Son welcomes us into righteous relationship with the Father by dealing with our despair and dealing with our entitlement. What is common about both of these results is that they lead to distance from God because of our lack of holiness. The person riddled with shame is unable to draw close. The person who is crippled by entitlement has no desire to draw close. First, Jesus defeats and defeats our depression, defeats our despair through his death. 
in dying in our place, he defeats all that could depress and bind us up in this world. In doing so, he becomes our advocate to the Heavenly Father. Hear this from Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the third commandment, we are called to never empty God of his character and nature. We are to consider, believe, and address him in his fullness of who he is. Yet in Christ, God the Son emptied himself. In other words, he stands in the gap between us and the Heavenly Father for us. Secondly, Jesus dismantles our entitlement by humbling himself. And in being humbled, the Father lifts him up. Therefore, he is our advocate and our righteousness. Paul continues in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. Somebody say, the name. The name. Somebody say it again. The name. He's bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every name you ever heard whispered about God anticipated this name of the Son of God. The name of Jesus holds the full skate, skate, the full weight, the full worth, the full beauty, the full truth of all of the name and claim and worthiness of God. Because Jesus was God. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Jesus has more to say about prayer, so I'll slow down. Verse 9, he says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. When we take God's name properly, we are changed, and so is the world around us. Because we're not speaking into a void, we're not speaking with vanity, we are speaking in power against despair and against entitlement toward a kingdom people who desire not for our will to be done, but the heavenly Father's. This is not a Father who does what we please. This is a father who does as he pleases. This is not a holy God who legalistically lords over the land and withholds provision and care. This is, this is a heavenly father who sends his one and only son to pay our debts, to protect us from temptation, to deliver us from evil. This is a realm which is promised to us in Christ right now. You see, Jesus envisioned a kind of prayer to be the pathway of our, or protection from breaking the third commandment. So if you desire for your despair to be calmed by Christ, pray to your heavenly father regularly. If you desire for your entitlement to be crippled and crushed and humbled by Christ, go to your heavenly father in prayer. Because it is this recurring rhythm of prayer, when and where we come face to face, not with our problems, but with the God who is both holy and loving, separate yet intimate, Father and Son and Spirit. That's what's really crazy about Philippians 2. I wonder if you caught it. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. If you want to be a humble woman or a humble man, you can be in Christ. The Lord says, this is yours in Christ. See, in Christ, we receive a new mind, which leads to new language, no longer riddled with vain glories, but a new mind filled with the glories of the name. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Our great God, Heavenly Father, what a gift it is to be reminded of your grace and of your character of your beauty, of your truth, 
And so we do ask for your forgiveness. Would you humble us? And those two categories, Father, you, you know I'm tempted to entitlement all the time. I'm shocked by my problems because I think my life's just supposed to be easy and work out for my comfort and my glory. So forgive me. Would you transform me by the renewing of my mind that I might have that mind of Christ? And I don't just pray that for myself. I pray that for my brothers and sisters. I pray for these, my church family, who are riddled with sorrow and shame today. But that's the place they go whenever there's an issue, a problem, a disappointment, that that's what they deserve. That you are a holy God who punishes them, but not a father who loves them. Would you transform their mind today that they might have a right view of you, seeing your holiness and the fatherhood of the name. I pray for others who are riddled with entitlement. Around every corner is an injustice against them. It's never their fault. I know, I know that language really well. I know that thought process really well. I pray that you would humble them, that you're not just a permissive father or some permissive father, but rather a holy God who speaks truth, speaks love, renew their minds, that we together, Father, might be a humble people, saved and sent for your purposes. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the table because it's what we need. It's what we do every week. We come to the table because this is the place where we see the glory of Jesus on display. Full righteousness, full grace, full love, full truth, full picture of his divinity and his humanity. And so we come not because we feel guilty before a holy God and not just because we feel like we deserve it. We, we come because of Jesus. We come, as, we come because Jesus on the cross upholds the holiness of God and yet extends grace to the people of God in our time of need. And so we come only one way as a people, humbly. We come repenting, we come confessing, we come lamenting, and yet we come somehow in all of that with joy, knowing that though my sin was like scarlet, it's now white as snow. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, that just wouldn't be your story. That wouldn't be why you're coming. And so we'd ask that you would abstain. But if for whatever reason the Spirit of God spoke to you today by His promise, by His providence rather, by His goodness, and you just sensed for the first time that you were able to confess your sin, to confess that Jesus is Lord, then brother, sister, come. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, take and eat. Because today is the day of salvation. So if that's the true disposition of your heart, we invite you to come. We have gluten-free elements every single station now. Um, and so come to any one of these. Uh, as soon as you're ready, you'll walk down the middle aisle, take a piece of the cracker, dip it into the cup, and we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So Heavenly Father, be glorified in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Come as soon as you're ready.